Parshat Kitisa, it's a pleasure to welcome you to my Parshat Tashavua share. And I, I'm going to go over old territory today. That means part of the material which I'm going to be sharing with you today, I've already uh, mentioned in past years, I think certainly in the year 2015, possibly in the year 2017, uh, we've spoken about the um, Parsha of the Egel, the Golden Calf, the tragic story that uh, happened immediately after the revelation at Mount Sinai. I know that we've had a couple of Sidrot in between, and we've heard some of the laws, etc. But chronologically speaking, in a purely narrative sense, the story that occurs in this week's Parsha, in Parshat Kitisa, which is so troubling and so tragic, occurred really immediately after the Yitro story. So, I'm, And I'm not going to go into the disputes between uh, various medieval commentaries as to the order of the Torah and how the narrative is delivered to us in the book of Shemot. That's not important for now. Let's just establish a timeline. And the timeline is very simple. There was a lead up after the Exodus to Mount Sinai. We know about that lead up because, and we know exactly how long it is because we count it every year. It's called Sefirat HaOmer. We know that the um, that the exodus occurred and that exactly 50 days later there was a revelation at Mount Sinai and the Jewish nation received the Torah. We know it. It's fact. What happened then? So the story gets a little bit confused and you're going to see that Rashi is going to discuss it uh, but somehow we know that Moshe Rabbeinu went up Mount Sinai and disappeared in the mists at the top of Mount Sinai, where he communed with God for 40 days and 40 nights, which means he came back on, uh, in, on, in Tammuz, Tammuz, the month of Tammuz. And we're going to see there was a confusion about the date of when he was meant to come back and when he actually came back. As it dawned on the Jewish nation during the month of Tammuz, and on that particular day, that Moshe hadn't returned when they had expected him to return, as we're going to see Rashi explain, they panicked and they put together, with the help, the assistance of Aaron, um, who was Moshe's brother, and Egel Hazahav. I'm not going to go into all the details of the story. I have done that in previous years, and of course, you're welcome to look through the narrative yourself. It's in chapter 32 of Shemot, they put themselves, they put together a golden calf for themselves, which they declared as Elohecha, whatever that means, whatever that meant. And we're going to see that there's a lot of apologetics involved in trying to explain the story. Uh, and at that stage, Moshe Rabbeinu actually came down the mountain, having been informed by God that something wasn't right in the camp, in the Jewish nation. And he comes down and he sees the Egel HaZahav. And the first thing he does is he breaks the Luchot. He just received this uh, divinely um, authored document on stone. It was engraved in, onto two tablets. The Ten Commandments that were received just uh, a month and a half earlier, less, 40 days earlier, had been inscribed onto these two tablets. He throws them to the ground. They shatter. He then does what he has to do, and the story is very, very difficult for us to read. You're going to see it in this week's parsha when we go through it on Shabbat. 
the Jewish nation is devastated and um, in fact God is also devastated and Moshe Rabbeinu is caught in between. God is saying let's destroy the nation and we're going to rebuild the nation through you, through Moshe Rabbeinu and everybody else no longer needs to exist. And Moshe Rabbeinu says if that's the case, if that's the case, please erase me from your Torah. I don't need to be involved in this genocide of the nation that you helped bring out of Egypt and you um, brought them out in such glory and splendor for the entire world to see only for them to be destroyed at the first hurdle. Give them another chance. This is one of the sources for Teshuvah in the Torah. And the Jewish nation is saved through the intervention of Moshe Rabbeinu. Now Moshe Rabbeinu doesn't let the nation off lightly. 3,000 of them are killed uh, as a result of their direct involvement in in uh, pagan activities that revolved around the Egel, and the nation is um, chastened as a result of this story, and this is the foundation of a new uh, movement. Um, some say this was the uh, the result of this was the construction of the Mishkan. Others say that the result of this was a totally different attitude um, towards the Jewish nation by God. Others um, add that the Jewish nation was then much more careful in its attitude towards divine worship. Whatever we're going to say, I mean, these are all details that we'll perhaps discuss another time. What I'd like to talk about this year, first of all, is the background to this grave error of judgment by the Jewish nation, who was involved and why they did it, according to the medieval commentaries. And then we're going to turn to our trusted source, the Nesivas Sholem. And he's going to give us a little bit more background. In fact, he's going to give us two astounding viewpoints as to what actually happened, how this error of judgment occurred among a nation that had just received the Torah at Mount Sinai. How was it possible? Let's begin with um, the first posuk of chapter 32. Um, I've got two source sheets this week. I've got one which is... Uh, the main source sheet, and I've got another one which is just a, a scan of the Nesiva's Sholem. You can find them both in the comment section of your Zoom if you're watching this on Zoom, or if you are watching on YouTube, it's a comment, or if you are listening to this on SoundCloud, then it's also a comment on SoundCloud. Just click on the link and you can download the source sheets for yourself, and uh, you can follow along um, as I'm saying it. Vayar ha'amki voishesh Moshe, a very strange word. The word voishesh is a strange word. The nation saw that Moses, Moshe Rabbeinu, was taking a long time. That's how we translate the word voishesh. But we're going to see that Rashi has a fascinating interpretation of the word voishesh. We're going to get to it. He was taking a long time, Loredes min ha'har, coming down from the mountain. In other words, they had thought he was going to come down at one time and he wasn't coming down and they were concerned for his well-being and perhaps even uh, they thought that he had died. So the next best person to Moshe Rabbeinu was the leader of the Jewish nation before Moshe Rabbeinu had turned up from Midian and that was his brother, his elder brother, Aaron. And they gathered to Aaron, they um, kind of ganged around him, I don't know what uh, what they were thinking, but there was total panic, and they mobbed him. And they said to him, Make for us a God who will 
travel before us a very strange request by any stretch of the imagination. You're going to see that um, Ibn Ezra, and we're going to see even Achronim, I think I, I included in this short sheet, I included the Kliyokar, um, but uh, we're going to see that there is uh, um, what I would call theological gymnastics, trying to explain this particular request of the Jewish nation to Aaron, that he should make for them a God who shall go before us, that askum lonu Elohim make for us a God who will go before us. Because this man, Moshe, who took us out of Egypt, who brought us out, brought us up from Egypt, he rescued us from the desperate situation of slavery that we were in in Egypt. He's no more, he's, he's not with us. We don't know where he is. We don't know where he's gone. He's disappeared. We need someone. We need something, whatever it is, whatever that may mean. And that's what they requested of Aaron HaKohen. And what transpired was that Aaron HaKohen became involved in the construction, the creation of the Egel HaZahav, the golden calf, which precipitated the disaster that I have already described. Let's look at Rashi. I'm going to actually read the translation that I've put together of the Rashi. The Rashi is on the Posuk. It's not the whole Rashi. I've just included a section of the Rashi, which tries to explain the cause of the mistake. Why did the Jewish nation want to replace Moshe? What was going through their minds when they made this very strange request of his brother Haran? Says Rashi, when Moshe went up the mountain, he said to the Jewish nation at the end of a period of 40 days, what does that mean? On the 40th day, at least that's the way they may have understood it, I will return during the first six hours of the day. In other words, before noon, before 12 o'clock on that day. Now, they thought that the day on which he had ascended the mountain, what was that day? It was the day after they had received the Torah. That mean, means it was the seventh of Sivan. You have got to keep Cheshben here. You've got to th uh, just listen carefully. It was the seventh of Sivan. That that day was included in the number. Now, how many days has Sivan got? I'm not going to expect you to answer out loud, but anybody who has um, a mental calculator can know that that Sivan has 30 days. So when was he expected back? He was expected back before noon on the 16th of Tammuz, right? If you, if you make the calculation, you'll see that on the 16th of Tammuz was the 40th day after the 7th of Sivan. But what he had actually said, and that's how they had, the misunderstanding arose, and again, this is an act of apologetics by Rashi, that what had happened was that he'd said after 40 days, and what he meant was after 40 days, meaning complete days. He didn't mean 40 days and the first day, the 7th of Sivan, was actually a full day. It wasn't. The 8th eighth of Sivan was the first full day because it was 40 full days each day together with the night that precedes it because we know that a Jewish day has to have a night coming before. We know that uh, we say in Bereshis, Vahiera, Vahivoike, it's the first Gemara in Brochus. Anybody who's, who started Dafyomi a year ago will know that the first Gemara in Brochus says, Vahiera, Vahivoike, 
that the day starts in the night. That's why the first mission in Brachas is Arvis in the night, because that's the first time you have a Chiv of Krishma, because it's the first moment of the day. That being the case, the seventh of Sivan wasn't considered a day in the Cheshbon of the 40 days and 40 nights that Moshe Rabbeinu was going to be at the top of Mount Sinai, they should have started counting on the 8th. Therefore, the 40th day is, you're still following the Cheshbon, on the 17th of Tammuz. By the way, why is the 17th of Tammuz an important day? Because it was established as a, as a fast day. To this day, it's a day of tragedy, a day of sadness, and a, um, a day when we uh, acknowledge that sometimes we make terrible mistakes that can cause grave disasters. Shiva Osa Batamas was also the day that began the siege of the destruction of the base Hamikdash, and we fast to this day. But one of the reasons that's given for Shiva Osa Batamas is the fact that it was the day that they constructed the Egel. It was the day of the Maseh Egel, the 17th of Tamas, they made that mistake. So the 40th day fell on the 17th of Tammuz, not on the 16th. And says Rashi, and he's basing himself, of course, on a medrash, because most Rashis such as this base themselves, um, um, he always bases himself on a medrash. The medrash says that the Sotan came along and he created what um, the, what the uh, medrash calls an arvuvia. He created chaos, gloom, disorder, darkness people would say Moshe's dead and you know there was such um uh, chaos there was chaotic scenes there was a tornado there was a hurricane and there was no sunshine and everything looked terrible and people said Moshe must have died God is so sad because Moshe must have died and that's why confusion has taken over the world that's why the world is in such a chaotic state. And then the Sotan, striking while they were vulnerable, said to them, yes, Moshe is dead because um, the six has already come. What does that mean? Shekvar bo'ushesh, bo'ushesh. Now we know the root of that word, bo'ushesh. Vayar ki bo'ushesh Moshe. The sixth hour has already come of the 16th of of Tammuz, of um, Tammuz, and therefore um, the time has come for Moshe Rabbeinu to be here. He is not here, therefore you must be right. And what happened was that they made the Egel. So Rashi explains this as a case of miscalculation, that the Jewish nation, having miscalculated the return, the arrival um, as a, um, of Moshe after 40 days at the top of Mount Sinai, having miscalculated the exact moment when he should arrive and having experienced the chaotic scenes of a hurricane, of a storm, of darkness or whatever it was that the Sotan brought about, decided that they needed a leader and they went to Aaron HaKoyen and they said to him, please create for us an Elohim who will go before us, who will be Bolifoneinu. That is Rashi's explanation. That's the one we were all brought up to believe, that they just made an, I don't want to call it an innocent mistake, but the type of mistake that can be explained away afterwards. It can be rationalized. Ibn Ezra, 
So the Ibn Ezra has a more profound question. The Ibn Ezra is very puzzled by the fact that Aaron Hakoin could become involved in such a terrible story. How could he? It's one thing for the nation to have whipped itself into this psychological frenzy. But how could Aaron Hakoin, a level-headed great man, how could he have allowed himself to be drawn into this story and to become an active participant in creating the Egel Hazav? Says the Ibn Ezra, Aaron How could he make the Egel? Because the creation of the Egel Hazav is even worse than that, uh, the fact that they bow down to it. He was a holy man of God. He was a prophet for the Jewish nation. We're not talking about some ordinary person. We're talking about Aaron Akoin, who spent the next 40 years of his life leading the Jewish nation as their high priest, as their Kohen Godel. We're not talking about an ordinary person. We're talking about a very great, very spiritual, very connected person. So if that's the case, how could he have constructed an Egel uh, um, at their request? And many times we see that the Torah says, And both of them are instructed to give um, information about mitzvahs to the Jewish nation. He is included. And therefore we know that he is a man of great significance. Moshe is obviously more significant than him in terms of the Messiah of the Torah to the Jewish nation, but nevertheless, he is Moshe's partner, a junior partner perhaps, but he is nevertheless a partner. Says, says the Ibn Ezra, how is it possible that he could make such a terrible mistake? The Imhu Asa um, Avodah Zarah, and if he, was a, if he actually made this Avodah Zarah, he compounds the question. The Ibn Ezra says, You know something? If that's the case, then Aaron should have been executed for his heresy even before those who had worshipped the idol because he'd made it and making an idol is even worse than worshipping it. And we know that Moshe Rabbeinu prayed for him uh, for his sake, for but he killed the 3,000 worshippers. Why should that be the case? Why is Aaron, why did he get off so lightly? Why is it that he was treated with kid gloves, and those who worshipped the Egel were executed. Says the Ibn Ezra, it is absolutely forbidden. And here we go back into apologetics. It is absolutely forbidden to suggest that Aharon HaKoyen could ever have made something which would be considered by any objective standard to be a pagan idol. In fact, says the Ibn Ezra, that which we read in the Torah, which appears to be the Jewish nation requesting an Avodah we're mistaken if that's what we think. That's not what was being requested. That's not what the Jewish na nation wanted. They imagined, they believed what their uh, opinion was, was that Moshe had died, that Moshe Rabbeinu who had rescued them 
from Egypt, brought them through the Yamsuf, he had somehow perished. Going back to what Rashi said, they saw that Moshe hadn't descended from Mount Sinai. And Moshe had remained there for 40 days. They had counted 40 days and this was the 40th day. And although we know they miscalculated based on what Rashi said, nevertheless, based on that miscalculation, they believed him to have somehow um, met a bitter end. And therefore, what happened? It's not possible for any person to live that long without eating. Moshe Rabbeinu hadn't eaten for 40 days and 40 nights. They know he hadn't eaten. So if he didn't come down from Har Sinai, it must be okay. They, they gave him the latitude that he said he would be back after 40 days. But if he wasn't back after 40 days, then it's, I mean, you don't need to be a great scientist or somebody who is a, an expert in the human diet to know that if you haven't eaten or drank for 40 days, you're dead. So they believe that Moshe must have died. He hadn't actually specified to them exactly when he was going to come down. He'd just been given them a vague um, a vague piece of information and now that all this time had passed and they thought it was 40 days they imagined he must be dead the truth is that Moshe Rabbeinu himself didn't know exactly when he was coming down all that he knew was that God said to him come up the mountain for me and, you know, spend time with me, commune with me at the top of the mountain. Stay there, dwell here at the top of the mountain until I'm going to give you the Luchas Abris. So the truth is that Moshe Rabbeinu may have said 40 days, but even he wasn't secure in the knowledge that it was exactly 40 and therefore, that being the case, And now, the Ibn Ezra adds another angle to this. You know, there was an element of the Jewish nation that wasn't Jewish. It was Egyptians who were down on their luck, and perhaps people from other nations, who um, tagged along with the Jewish nation when they escaped from Egyptian slavery. They were known as the Erev Rav. And it's only as a result of them. So, so far we've had excuse after excuse. You have to, you have to give it to the Rishonim. They managed to come up with incredible reasons to why the Jewish nation erred in this particular way. Firstly, they'd miscalculated. Second of all, they never really requested Avodah Zorah, but they needed a leader. And they imagined, they must have thought that Moshe died because how could he possibly have lived 40 days and 40 nights without food and water? In addition to which, they had this additional group of people among them known as the Erev Rav, who were influencing them in the wrong direction. And that's why the Posuk says, in the bad. They weren't bad themselves. They were involved with the bad. They were somehow associated with bad. Who is that bad? It's the Erev Rav. The Erev Rav are the perfect scapegoats in any negative situation throughout the period that the Jewish people were in the wilderness. The Erev Rav were always um, agents of the evil influence. They were the people who drew the Jewish nation away from God or in the wrong direction. Perhaps with good intentions, possibly with bad intention. That's never made clear. But they were 
interfering with the destiny, the spiritual destiny of the Jewish nation, because they didn't have the Jewish nation's spiritual destiny at heart. All they had at heart was survival, and they had obviously grown up in an environment where pagan worship was perfectly normal. And even though the Jewish nation may have experienced the revelation of Mount Sinai, the Ere of Rav were only connected by association, and therefore at the first a hurdle, the first difficulty, they um, were true to form and they became the pagans they had always been. The truth is that may have been a few of the Jewish nation, Ibn Ezra concedes, who did think that the Egal was Yisrael, And they did bring Karbanais to this Egal. And they said, this is your God, O Israel. So we know the Posik does refer, make reference to the fact that the, um, that the nation had been abominated by this group. But the Posik doesn't write the entire nation. It just writes your nation, part of your nation. A section, a fraction of your nation has been contaminated uh, by their association with this pagan worship. And we're talking about all of those who were worshipping the Egal as if it was Navoidazara, or somehow they had that in mind. At the, uh, the total number of those who made the mistake of imagining that the Ega was, in fact, a god, were only 3,000. That's why out of an entire nation of 600,000 adults and who, uh, adult men, and who knows how many women, we, we must double it at least for the number of women so that we know that there were at least 1.2 million adult um, men and women, and that doesn't include all the children, doesn't include all the people over the age of 60. So we can reckon that there were at least 2 million Jews who came out of Egypt. Out of that entire number, only 3,000 were, uh, were killed as a result of their worship of the Egel Hazav. It was a fraction of a fraction, a tiny amount, the tiniest, smallest proportion, says the Ibn Ezra, of the Jewish nation, who in fact got involved in this terrible Avera, in this terrible abomination of worshipping the golden calf. And he says that the vast majority, even those who may have thought that the golden calf was a somewhat good idea, were never, never imagined for a moment that it was Navodazara or a replacement of God, or even to even a perfect replacement of Moshe. That's the implication. But they, but they somehow allowed themselves this liberty only as a result of having made a mistake in the belief that Moshe Rabbeinu was dead, having miscalculated, as we learned earlier in Rashi, um, the forty days and forty nights that he was meant to be at the top of Mount Sinai. It's the smallest, smallest fraction, says the Ibn Ezra, of the total who were in the camp of the Jewish nation. Says the Ramban, we're now at source number three on your source sheet. We know that there was no one among the Jewish nation who imagined for a moment, even one second, a millisecond, that Moshe was God. 
And there was no one who imagined it. I mean, it certainly wasn't Moshe who projected this idea, and they would never have believed it, that it was him who created all the miracles and the wonders that had enabled them to emerge out of Egypt. And yet, we know it says that they asked Aaron Akain to create an Elohim who will go before us. And when they asked for that Elohim, they weren't suggesting that this was a God that was going to give them life in this world and the next world. The word Elohim is used here in a leadership context. It's not used in a God context. So the Ramban is explaining the word Elohim to mean that it's they're asking for a replacement for Moshe, that the Egel Hazov should be somehow imbued with the power to do whatever, whatever it was that Moshe Rabbeinu had done. We don't have a Moshe Rabbeinu anymore. He's gone for whatever reason. He's not coming back. We need someone to do whatever it is that Moshe Rabbeinu did. Let it be this Egel Hazov. Omru Moshe Shahir Lono Haderech Mimitzrayim Vadheina. Moshe, who showed us the way from Egypt until this place. Hine ovad mimenu. He has been lost from us. We don't have him anymore. He's gone. We need a new Moshe, a new Elohim. Elohim in that broader context of meaning a leader. He will be the, um, he'll be the GPS for us. He'll be the God, the divine GPS, who will direct us, who will guide us in the direction that we need to go. And that's why they mentioned in that same posuk that we quoted earlier, where it says, That, with, with reference to the Elohim that we mentioned, we're not speaking about God. Obviously, God is God. But we need the man of God, who is Moshe, who is who is the conduit for the will of God for us, that he will guide us, whoever it is, this golden calf will guide us to direct us in which way we should go. It didn't say that God who brought us up, they needed a man of God. Again, the Ramban is... Um, is acting in an apologetic manner for the Jewish nation, trying to find some way of, uh, of mitigating this terrible and tragic error that the Jewish nation made by uh, um, creating a golden calf. They didn't really create a god. And I know that if you read the Psukim, you'll think immediately to yourself, it doesn't make much sense. But there is Shonim, we've just seen three. We've seen Rashi, we've seen Ibn Ezra, and we have seen, um, we've seen the Ramban. All of them trying to find excuses for the Jewish nation for creating the golden calf. I'm going to leave it here. You've got a fourth um, source in your source sheet, which you can look at, which is the Kliyokar. And he um, um, goes ahead with this idea that the heir of Rab were the cause of all the anguish of the Bnei Yisrael. Had it not been for the heir of Rab, they would never have done this. I'm not going to go into those details. I'm going to now turn to the Nesivas Sholem, who's going to address the fundamental question that you all have on your minds, which is, how is it possible? Okay, with all the best excuses in the world, you know, when people make mistakes, of course they can come up with excuses. 
But in the first instance, as we always put it in the Hebrew terminology, how was it possible? Don't give me the bedieved excuse. In the first instance, knowing who you are and what you've achieved and where you've reached, how was it possible for you to make this mistake? Of course, you made a mistake and you can say sorry and do teshuva. But how did you make the mistake in the first place? I had a great uncle. He lived in Rehobot and he used to say, don't say sorry, just don't do it in the first place. The point is that the Ega was such a grave error of judgment that it deserves rather more explanation than the ones we've just heard from Rashi ibn Ezra and Ramban. And of course, these are the key medieval commentaries on the Torah and their words are, I'm not for a moment going to suggest that what they're saying is incorrect, but it somehow doesn't satisfy our yearning for a true answer to this puzzle, which is how did the Jewish nation fall into this trap in the first place? Not the trap based on the explanations and the excuses and the mistakes, but how was it possible spiritually? How was it possible for such great people, people who had received the Torah directly from God, to have allowed themselves to fall into this trap that was set for them by the Sotan and which um, resulted in this tragic episode of the Egel Hazav? Says the Nesiva Shalom, Let's be, let's be frank, he says. This story of the Egel is one which is so puzzling that you literally cannot understand it. And even after you've read all the explanations that have been said about this, we still cannot possibly understand, we cannot fathom how it is possible that the Jewish nation could have fallen into the trap of behaving in this despicable fashion, that they would have fashioned a Egel Hazov and worshipped it. Moshe Rabbeinu admitted immediately that this nation has performed the worst possible sin before you. And we can see from the shattering of the luchos that Moshe Rabbeinu did. The depth and the depravity of this devastating sin. Come on. Moshe Rabbeinu wouldn't have broken the luchos if it was just a mistake, a bit of a misjudgment, if it was just something that was an error, something that could be corrected easily. This was as bad as it could get. Moshe Rabbeinu shiber b'yodov. Moshe Rabbeinu took with his hands and he broke what did he break? Beyodah with his own hands. Esaluchos ashemase eloikim heima. They are the construct of God. God constructed them. God made them. God created them. God formed them, and Moshe Rabbeinu destroyed them. Vamichtav michtav eloikimhu, and the etched writing on the luchos was the writing, the personal script of God. 
and Moshe Rabbeinu broke them. There was no other alternative in Moshe Rabbeinu's frame of reference. Of all the possibilities that were open to him at that stage, there was nothing else he could have done but break the luchas. He had to break the luchas. He had no choice because of the gravity of the sin. How is it possible that the Jewish nation fell so rapidly in 40 days from the giving of the Torah Mount Sinai 40 days later, they could fall to such depth of depravity. How is it possible? Depths of depravity that would require the shviras haluchas, the breaking of the tablets that have been personally etched and formed by God. The nira loima bazal pi masha omru chazal, we must answer this. We must understand this through that which it says in chazal, it's a gomorrah in sukkah daf nun base omad base. The Gemara says, If it wouldn't be for the fact that God helps you, you wouldn't be able to withstand the temptation of the Yetzirah. That the Koyach, the strength, the power of the Yetzirah, of the evil inclination, is so powerful, so overpowering, that with your own power, with your own abilities, you're just not able to withstand it under any circumstances. It cannot happen. You wouldn't be able to do it if it wouldn't be for the fact that God helps you. I've underlined this in my copy here. You have a guardian up above that is giving you constantly the habali as the Gemara in Yuma says, that somebody who comes to purify himself, God will help him. God will act as a guardian for him. But you should know that without that guardianship, without that help, without that assistance from God, you wouldn't be able to do it yourself. It's not possible. You can't do it. And this is what the Chazal, the famous Gemarin Chagiga Daf Tesvov, talks about the tragic story of Acher, Elisha ben Avuya, who was, as you know, one of the great Tanoim. He was the Rebbe of Reb Meir. He was a contemporary of Rebbe Akiva. And he went into the Paradise. And unfortunately, he emerged and became an Apikurus, and Rabea tried to get him back. And the whole, there's a whole Gemara then, Chagiga. And he knows that he can never return. The Gemara says, It's a, it's a posseg in Yermia. The, the verse in Jeremiah says, Return those who want to do Teshuvah, my sons who want to do Teshuvah. Adds the Gemara, besides Acher, Acher can never return. He can never do Teshuvah. Explains this Nesivus Shalom using a beautiful Baal Shem Tov. There's no such thing as giving up hope. Everybody has hope of doing Teshuvah. How is it possible that Acher is excluded from Teshuvah? By the way, it's not the first person to ask the question. Everybody asks the question, 
if we know that teshuva works, how is it possible that Acher is excluded from teshuva? Let's hear what the Besh, the Baal Shem Tov, has to say, an incredible Baal Shem Tov, that explains, of course, Acher could have done teshuva, but using what we've just said, he explains why Acher is excluded by this Baskoil, by this heavenly voice. Every single day a baskal, a heavenly voice goes out and says, Return, my children, surely you should return and do teshuva. The It makes no sense that this baskal goes out. What's the point of it, says the Baal Shem Tov. If this baskal goes out, why don't we hear it? Are you listening? I didn't hear a baskal that says shuvu vanim shayvavim. I didn't hear it. So what's the point of the baskal? The im ein shayvim oisa l'shema he yoytsas. And if nobody hears it, what's the point of it going out in the first place? If it goes out, surely I should hear it. But if I don't hear it, why does it bother going out? Beer. Shabaskal hazois he hamakol hirure hatushuva. You must understand that you in your soul have something called hirhure teshuva, yearning for teshuva, yearning for return for the relationship with Hashem. And those hirhurim, hamisayim, tomid, belev, yehudi, that are constantly, um, in, uh, they are working in the soul of a Jewish person, they're constantly in action. He hamakol hirhure teshuva. They are the source of the Hurhure Teshuva, and, and what do they do? They can hear the Baskal. You may not hear it, but those Hurhurim, they can hear the Baskal. They are part of the Shmira El Yoina that, um, that God um, offers as a guardianship, as a protection, as a an assistance, as a source of Teshuva for every Jew. You wouldn't be able to do Teshuva without this Baskoil. The Baskoil is the source of Teshuva for you and your Hirhurim inside your Leib and Nefesh. They are listening for, out for the Baskoil. You may not hear it because you're too involved in the things that you're doing, but your Hirhurim in your Leib, they can hear it. Shema'urim alidei Habaskal hamagas lechol lev Yehudi. Every lev Yehudi can hear it, and they are pushing you to do teshuva. Shuvu vanim shayvavim. Al bizeh yesh lefarish yotza baskal va'omra shuvu vanim shayvim chutz me'acher. Now we can understand how this baskal goes out and says shuvu vanim shayvavim. But Acher is somehow excluded. Why is Acher excluded? Somehow, Acher is excluded from the Hurim of Teshuvah that can hear the Baskal. He doesn't have this ability to hear the Baskal. Because he has deliberately prevented himself from hearing it. He knows, by the way, it's him speaking. He's the one who's telling the story about the Baskoil and that he can't hear it. He knows that he has built a wall between himself and that Baskoil. He is no longer able to access the help and the assistance that God can give him in order to do Teshuvah. But if he changed his attitude and if he did Teshuvah, God would receive it. God would listen to him. 
He is the one who's building the wall. You can build a wall between yourself and the ability to repent, the ability to return to God. But this ability, this shmirah, was taken away from him. Why? Because he didn't want it. If you don't want it, you won't get it. That shmirah elyoina, which protects you, that is what, um, that is what prevented Acher, Acher from ever being able to do Teshuvah. And that's what he was telling Reb Meir. There's two reasons why it happens. There are those who are unable to access the Shmira of Makodesh Baruch Hu because of their greatness. And there are those who are unable to attach themselves to the Shmira because of their, uh, of their I, I guess, um, uh, inability to reach the level that they can get to it. You haven't reached the threshold. The godless, the greatness of a person, that's because the Gemara says, the Gemara is in Sukkot and Beis Amad Aleph, it says that anybody who is greater than his friend, greater in spiritual terms than his Yetzah, his Yetzirah, is greater than that of his friend. It's, it goes by scale. You know that if you are a great person, then your Yetzirah is very great. If you are not such a great person, you have a tiny Yetzirah. Why? Because the Yetzirah doesn't have to have any muscles. It doesn't have to do any exercise because it's pushing at an open door. But if it's pushing at a closed door, it needs to exercise every day, which means the Yetzirah gets stronger and stronger and stronger. Which means, says the Nesiv Shalom, when a person is great and he can withstand, even with, um, um, withstand whatever it is that the Yetzirah throws at him, even without the Shmirah, from above because his strength the strength that is the power of holiness that he has is so great he doesn't need help he has got it himself he's built for himself an incredible spiritual power base that he doesn't need to come onto the therefore he has a massive horror. beware such a person shouldn't think that he is safe. As we know, Yochanan Kohen Godel, even at the age of 80, uh, was unable to withstand the Yetzirah. He'd been great all the way through, and suddenly he collapsed and he became a Rasha. We know that the Yetzirah can become, for such a person, very strong, even when he's, he's built himself this incredible spiritual a power base, he is nevertheless vulnerable. He becomes more vulnerable in a way because the Yitzhahara is stronger. And particularly because the, it, um, the elevated Shmira, the Shmira from above, is no longer something he can rely on, is no longer a resource that he can use. Because God can say, well, he's okay, that guy's okay. It's not a problem for him because he can withstand that, that test. Says the Nesiva Shalom, that, in fact, was the sin of the Egel Hazav. Like the Gemara Sukkah says, the Jewish nation was at the greatest possible level spiritually that they had ever been and that they could ever be. 
it wasn't possible to become more elevated. They were the highest possible level that a person, that a human being can be. Says, They had... Um, they had the Kabbalah's HaTorah. They had received the Torah at Mount Sinai. And that receiving the Kabbalah's HaTorah had elevated them to the highest possible level. They had elevated themselves to the highest level that it is possible for a human being to get to. As it says about them, it says, you are like God and you are like the children from above, all of you. The Jewish nation at that stage of their history was at the highest possible level that they could ever get to. That was the moment of their greatest vulnerability. Because at that moment, their strength was removed from them. They were no longer able to withstand the Yetzirah. Because they had reached the highest possible level. God was now focused on teaching Moshe the Torah. And they were left to their own devices in the greatness that they had achieved. And at that moment they were so vulnerable. Because at that moment the Yetzirah was so powerful, had to be powerful, in order to convince them that that's the way they needed to, that's what they needed to do, that they needed to be uh, build an eagle. And that's how they made the eagle. That's how it was possible. So the Nesiva Sholem explains that the greater you are, the more you achieve in your levels of spirituality, the more vulnerable you are to the Yetzirah attacking you. The Yetzirah is more interested in a prize than in somebody who's weak, because somebody who's weak, who cares? They're already weak. They're already doing wrong stuff. And that's the Nesiva Sholem in first explanation as to what happened in the Masa Egel. I'm going to skip a small section here and I'm going to go over the last thing that the Nesiva Sholem says, which is so incredibly powerful. It's the second column on the second sheet of the Nesiva Sholem source sheet. We can also, um, the Farish, we can also add as an explanation. It's because the Jewish nation was in this elevated level of spirituality. As the Gemara says, As the Gemara says, I've already described it, the Post Containum says, You're like God, you're at the level, you're at the holiest possible level that can be for any human being. In fact, they had lost... The, um, the Malach HaMobes, the angel of death, had lost any power of the Jewish nation. They could not die. Can you imagine that? The power of death had been removed from them. They were, um, they were going to live an eternal life. They were going to live for eternity. That was the power of Kabbalah Satoira. That's why it says later on the Apostle, because only as a result of the Maser Egel did this power of eternal life get removed from them. 
Actually, Kabbalah Satora should have been, and that was the plan. That was going to be the final tikkun for the human race. The chosen nation were going to be the final realization of God's purpose, having created the earth, created the universe. This was the purpose. He wanted a nation that was going to fulfill his purpose in a physical universe and the Jewish nation was that nation and this was going to be the plan, the everlasting plan. It didn't happen. That had been the plan, by the way, as well for Adam Arishan, it didn't work. That had been the plan for Noach and it didn't work. Now, finally, there was going to be the realization of God's initial plan for creation. Masiberatius all the way through to Kabbalah Satoira. This was what was going to happen. They had reached the type of level spiritually that had never happened before in human history and would never happen again. It would never happen again. What happened in Mount Sinai, Sinai was a unique human experience that would never happen again. That's why they had to go through this incredible test, this challenge to their authenticity, as it were. And it all went horribly wrong. He quotes an earlier one of the Slonim Rebbe's, the Beisavram, who says that this is the idea of an Isoyen. What's the idea of a challenge? I know that we know that Avram Avinu went through Asor and and all the uh, forefathers and matriarchs went through Nisyonis, tests. What, what's the idea of a test? What is the point of it? See, he says, he quotes a story about the Chayz of Lublin. He says the Chayz of Lublin once went through, I don't know what it was, he doesn't really specify what the test was. He went through a terrible, terrible test and he lost complete control of his, of his rational faculties. And whatever the test was, he was about to do the Avera, whatever the Avera was. And the only thing that saved him, says the Nasiva Shalom, was the fact that he had a principle, that the Chayz of Lublin had a principle, that he never did anything unless he knew 100% that it was for the benefit of Hashem. And somehow... The work that he put into this middah, into this practice that he'd established for himself, prevented him from doing whatever it was that he had already rationalized a hundred times that he would do. He lost all power of resistance to this particular Avera, but when he came to doing it, this thing, he felt somehow within him was not something that he could do because somehow it didn't reflect a purpose of God. It wasn't for the benefit of Hashem. V'hizbir moron. Zuchusa yogan aleinu says in the Nesiva Shalom, the Beis Avram explains. He wants us to understand what happened in this story. Sheba'eis nisoyin. At a time of a test. Noitli meha'odam kol ma'ashayesh lo'i milvad esherachash b'yigiyosoy. When you go through a test, every single faculty and ability to resist is removed from you, besides for the work that you've put into yourself to prevent you from behaving in a particular way. 
that which you've created, it's a habit forming thing. You've put work into something, whatever it is, let's say, and we know, I'll give you a habit that we're all familiar with. We all wake up at a particular time every day, whether you have an alarm clock or you don't have an alarm clock, whatever time it is that you wake up, that's the time you wake up. Now, sometimes you go to bed late, and you need to put an alarm clock on. Often you'll find that even with the alarm clock on, you'll anyway wake up at the same time. Your body clock is so tuned in to waking up at a particular time that you don't need to have the alarm clock. Imagine in everything that you did in life, in every act that you did in life, you had an alarm clock. That it's natural ability, your natural instinct has been trained to do a particular thing in a particular way or not to do a particular thing in a particular way because you've trained it's ingrained in your personality in your psyche in your behavior in your character that this is what i do then even when it comes to something which is extremely tempting that will act as a natural barrier you will not do that thing because when it comes to it you won't be able to do it says the Nesivas Sholem. Do you know what the problem was with Ma'amad Har Sinai? That no one put any effort into it in order to get there. 49 days after leaving Egypt, it was the 50th day. There they were, standing at the foot of Mount Sinai, and God, whether they deserved it or not, said, and they experienced this incredible experience of having a face-to-face with God. Now, they're on the highest spiritual level. I mean, who can't, anybody who's at that level is going to, I mean, come on, you, you saw God. But then comes a challenge. Everybody goes through challenges. Everybody meets hurdles in life. Everybody has problems. Everybody has situations which they cannot foresee and which are going to challenge the very foundation of who they are and what they should be doing. Now, if your experiences prior to that challenge have prepared you to meet that challenge head on because you have diligently lived your life in a particular way and therefore whatever this challenge offers is something that when it comes to it you cannot possibly contemplate then it makes no difference how enticing that challenge is like the story of the Chayzeb Lublin when it came to it he knew that whatever he did in life had to be for the benefit of Hashem and this obviously wasn't and therefore All the other rationalizations came to naught. It was totally irrelevant. Why? Because as far as he was concerned, he couldn't possibly do it. Because it didn't fit in with all the preparations he'd made in his life to reach that point. The problem for the Jewish nation at the moment when Moshe Rabbeinu didn't return was they didn't have the foundation the lifelong foundation of preparing themselves for this level of challenge to their faith, for this level of challenge to who they needed to be in this moment of crisis. And that's why they failed. And that's why they fell. And that's why they couldn't meet this challenge head on. And that is why the luchas need to be broken. That is why they couldn't retain that elevated status that they had achieved at Mount Sinai because it wasn't natural. It wasn't part yet of who they are. I think the powerful lesson of the Nesivas Sholem is that we need to work hard to remain spiritual. We need to work hard to remain elevated. We need to know that we need to make it ingrained in our character. 
to be the special people that we need to be. We shouldn't imagine that our faith in God should be taken for granted. We shouldn't imagine that our kindness to others is something that can be taken for granted. It will meet challenges. And when it meets those challenges, will we be able to withstand those challenges? Will we be able to withstand the challenge of an Egel Hazohov if it comes our way, if we can rationalize for a hundred reasons, whatever they may be, that the Egel Hazohov makes sense? Will we reach a red line where we'll say, oh, we can't cross it? Or does that red line not exist because we've not put the pieces in place to make sure that we can resist that temptation when it occurs? We'll leave it here for today. Thank you.